Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 209 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Julie Carrick Dalton. Julie is the author of The Last Beekeeper and Waiting for the Night Song, which is a CNN, USA Today Parade, and Newsweek most anticipated novel. Her writing has appeared in Business Week, The Boston Globe, The Hollywood Reporter, Orion, Chicago Review of Books, Lit Hub, Electric Literature, and other publications, an adjunct writing instructor for Drexel University's MFA program. Julie is currently working on her third novel, which is slated for publication in 2025. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, so awesome to talk to you. Drexel University is in the beautiful city of? Philadelphia. I thought so. Okay. Yeah, I'm actually starting there in, in, in the new year. So it hasn't started yet. So I'm super excited about this new job. Oh, good for you. I've heard Philly's, I've heard good things about Philadelphia. Very, uh very loyal and maybe stubborn people maybe stubborn in a good sense of the word uh bear i married one of them and okay. i can attest to the stubbornness and that he bleeds eagles green he is a diehard philly fans are are pretty hardcore okay has he ever um slitted up a lamppost i i don't know if he has but i don't think he'd be opposed mm -hmm. to it i know okay. philly fans they throw batteries they you know uh, they they're they're a ruckus bunch I might be combining things, but isn't that, then they like, like slather down the lamp mm -hmm. with like butter or olive oil or something? They, they did because people were climbing up the, for the parade, I think it was or something. Yeah. 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 Gotta love it. Gotta love it. That's some loyalty right there. Man. <laughs> and I think something about, don't they, isn't it like open, not open carry weapons, but open carry like alcohol or something like that? I, I That wouldn't surprise me at all. I don't know that for a fact, but that would not surprise me. I feel like it's BYOB or something to the restaurant, something like that. Yeah, it might be. That sounds very Philly. <laughs> well, sorry, I didn't I didn't have you on here just to talk about Philadelphia. You're so much more than that, including the author of these great books. Um, I usually do this at the end, but um, I'd love to hear hear about your third novel as much as little as much as you want to say about the one that's slated for publication in 2025. Yeah, so it's um it's actually due to my editor on November 1st. Um, Ooh. so that's only a couple weeks away. So it's very much in my mind. Um, yeah, it's you know like in broad strokes, it's you know it's a story about uh, a piece of land in Concord, Massachusetts. It was clear cut to build a housing development, and it's about three women who live near or on the um, new development, and about their connection to this forest that disappeared. It's really a kind of a story about our connection to the land, to each other, and what a community loses when it loses an entire forest beyond the obvious like loss of trees or beauty. Like what else yeah. do we lose when a forest disappears? Oh wow. Have you read um, Alice Elliot Dark's latest? No. What's the which title's that? It is, and it's one of my favorites, and I can't remember the title. I'm looking up right now, but it's about like a like a kind of like a conservancy or like a family plot of land in Maine. Oh, that sounds right up my uh, alley. Yeah, like a like a saga, Fellowship Point. 
Oh, I have that book actually. I didn't write. Yes. Yeah, I, I haven't read it, but I ha I have. I own it. Yeah, it's, I can picture. Uh, it's a it's a really good read. It's a really 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 good read. I I I had her on a while back. I I knew her from the the short story that became just one of like the greatest hundred of the century. You know, all those anthologies that in the gloaming, which is one of my favorites of all time. And then to read this, this is an epic. It's like I think it's like five hundred pages, but it's well worth it. Yeah, no, it's definitely it's definitely on my list. I love books about. Anything about nature, it's art. I'm, I'm there. I'm getting that. I'm getting that after having read The Last Beekeeper for sure. So, um, looking forward to the next one. So, uh, let's go back to the beginning. I'm assuming grew up in New Hampshire, up in the Northeast. Uh, maybe no, not. I'm actually, no, Boston. I'm from, no, I'm from, I, I live part time in Boston and part time in New Hampshire, but I'm actually from Annapolis, Maryland. You're throwing us all off here. Okay. All right. I know. Okay. Um, so, I wonder about your, about growing up and your relationship with, with, the written word with reading as well as um with nature yeah no I, I love talking about that I had um so my my parents you know read to me a lot when I was a kid as you know everybody's do but my parents took it further because my mom ran a puppet theater Whoa. and that's what she did and she uh, would write all the scripts for her own puppet shows and mm -hmm. um I was her assistant a lot of times on the weekend I'd be like have to go travel around on weekends to like birthday parties Whoa. and schools and things um, and so she would write these scripts and practice them and try them out on me. And I, you know, she basically we should like workshop her puppet shows with me. Dang. And then I started writing scripts for her puppet theater and I was about 10. And so stories have always just been this thing. And, you know, it's always mm -hmm. been a big part of, of my life. And my father, actually, he's very different. He's more of a nonfiction guy, but he's written, I think he's on his fourth genealogy book right now. He's really into wow. research and history. Mm -hmm. So my parents both brought that you brought I'm a journalist as well so I think I got you know a little bit of storytelling on both sides from my parents and oh. then the nature part um my grandparents had a this amazing farm in the mountains of uh western Maryland up in that Appalachian corner near West mm. Virginia and it had it was really rustic it had no hot running water it didn't have a, a bathtub or a shower I mean it literally we had to heat water mm. to in a tub um to take a bath in the kitchen or if it were outside mm. if it was warm enough and um, it was an amazing place, no telephone, uh, no radios. And it was, all there was, was nature and it was beautiful. And so we'd spend our summers, like literally, I, I literally spent an entire summer in, in elementary school trying to catch a single specific chipmunk. I, I never did, but and that's all we, that's what we had nature was our, our yeah. playground toys. And um, yeah, I think that shaped me. You, you obviously don't know my, my background, but do you think, have I seen a chipmunk? I feel like they're all squirrels. Is a chipmunk clearly <laughs> different than a squirrel? Oh, very much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm very okay. fond of both of them. I, I know people would want to argue with me about this. And then um, I love squirrels. In fact, I used to, <laughs> my, my grandfather was a lumberjack. Mm -hmm. And when he would bring down trees that had squirrels nests in them, he was like a big softy. So he would take the squirrels in his pocket and bring them home because a mother squirrel won't return to a downed nest. Okay. And we raised them. So we had pet oh. squirrels, like literally pet squirrels. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, so I have a, a big soft spot for squirrels and chipmunks. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, thank you for that. Such an interesting background. The, um, so, I mean, do, would your mom do like the different voices and the whole, like take on different personas and the whole deal? Absolutely. Yeah. She was great. And just like, uh, just like the father in the last beekeeper, right? He, there's a short little hand puppet thing <laughs> that he does to make his daughter. Yeah, I, for yeah. I forgot about that. That was so cool. A little Easter egg, if you will. Yeah. Um, was it one where like did the hand ever show or was it like very like were you very able to clearly keep like stay in character uh, with the puppet show um yeah i i very rarely was act 
holding a puppet, doing it. I was the one yeah. behind the stage helping her swap puppets in and out and get props ready. Yeah. Um, I very rarely was actually performing um, mm-hmm. in the puppet show. Um, and it was a pretty uh, low-key, kind of low-tech kind of thing, but it was yeah. a lot of fun. It's called the Lollipop Puppet Theater. <laughs> oh, wow. I would assume it was pretty lighthearted, but I mean, did you ever throw in any like dark and like dark and dangerous themes in your puppet? No, show? although there was a, a, a wolf. That was like okay. this scary puppet. He was like yeah. the bad puppet, but that's as far as it went. Yeah, it was okay. pretty light stuff. <laughs> is it is it possible to get that back, or maybe you've never lost that that the the innocence of of youth with nature and you know whole summer for a squirrel? I mean, the world of smartphones and and you know high level technology and all that is it is it something that you I guess you personally really have to like fight to to get back. Yeah, I, I, I feel exactly what you're saying. Um, when In my first book, Waiting for the Night Song, it's set up in New Hampshire in the woods of and on a lake in New Hampshire, um, where I am right now. And it to me, the book was set in two timelines. One was in my main character's 11-year-old voice and one in her adult voice, just like Beekeeper was. Mm-hmm. And um, what I was doing when I wrote that is I was imagining that this this adult character longing for that that you know what you're describing that youthful sense of awe and wonder about nature and the innocence and just joy of being in nature that when she goes home as an adult that's missing in her life and through her adult timeline she's trying to like see see through the eyes of her childhood self again a little bit to see yeah. the world the way she used to see it because we you know we we see the we see the trees, but do we really see them? You know, as an adult, we just drive past and we don't look at them the way we did when we were kids. Um, so I, I think I still do that. I'm, I think I'm a very much a, I'm a tree toucher <laughs> when I walk yeah, by a tree. Yeah, yeah. Like I want to touch the bark or, you know, I'm always running my fingers along a stone fence to feel the crevices and rocks. So I think I do still see it that way. That's, that's beautiful. A, a new term. You're not necessarily, you're probably a tree hugger also, but definitely a tree toucher. <laughs> oh, for sure. Nice, nice. What uh what what were you reading as you got into grade school, high school, into college? What were some of the books that really challenged you slash thrilled you? I read a ton and I was all over the place. I love stories of the unexplained, you know. Mm-hmm. I loved like um purported nonfiction stories of mysterious events and UFOs and witches or spells mm-hmm. or curses and mm-hmm. all sorts of paranormal stuff. I loved that. I, I loved reading, I loved The Hobbit. Um, I was a, an enormous Little Women fan. I would say Joe March was maybe possibly still my favorite literary heroine of all time. Loved Little Women. Um, I, you know, I loved, you know, mysteries, you know, uh, the usual, um, you know, Nancy Drew kind of stuff. And then as I got older, I was, <laughs> I was really into the V.C. Andrews books for a while. Do you oh, know, there's like the flowers yeah. in the attic and all the, oh, yes, that was a salacious um, you know, and, um, so I had a, a pretty broad reading list, but I read a ton when I was a kid. Mm. How did how did writing come into play? I mean, were you writing journals? Were you writing as long with along with reading? Was was there a eureka moment of some sort too? I mean, where uh, um, a valued teacher or a friend or esteemed, you know, somebody was like, "Hey, this is really good." Yeah, you know, I had um, a, a, a teacher in middle school, an English teacher and an English teacher in high school, both had a really profound impact. I mean, in fact, I just went to my 35th high school reunion mm-hmm. and I sent pictures back to my English teacher. Like I still stay in touch with her on uh, Facebook awesome. and she knows I, she was actually in the acknowledgments of my first book mm-hmm. that um, that they really made me feel like I could write and that there was, you know, there's something to it. And 
Um, I became a journalist. I was writing nonfiction, but even then I was always dabbling in fiction. I was, you know, when I was a kid, I was always making up stories. You know, I was writing for my mom's theater. Mm. I um, would just write these little stories on the side, wrote some really bad poetry in middle school, you know, went through that, you know, phase. Mm. Um, But I was always writing something. And then after, I guess it was after my third child was born, I have four kids. Um, I left my job, my full-time job as a journalist and was working at home part-time. And I went back to school for creative writing for a master's. Mm -hmm. And that's when something snapped. I was like, this is actually a thing I could do. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to invest some time in learning how to do it better and study the craft a little bit. Um, So I got my master's and um, I never really looked back. I still write journalism articles sometimes. Mm -hmm. I still do that occasionally, Mm -hmm. but I am solidly a fiction writer now. Wow. Um, you are one of the two writers who was slinging Yang recently with the Jeff Hoffman <laughs> podcast, right? It's called Two Writers Slinging Yang. Slinging Yang? Yes. Slinging. Yeah. Right? I think, it's, I think it's slinging, yeah. Slinging. So cool to hear you talk about, you know, shared uh, University of Delaware Mud Hens? <laughs> Blue Hens. Blue Hens. Sorry, sorry. I think there's a minor league baseball team called the Mud Hens. Blue Hens. Sorry. I think I made the same mistake with him. Blue Hens. Blue Hens. Do you, would you be able to look back at your journalism? And like you said, you're not, not that you're done with it, but. Is there de- are there definitely traces of the creative writing in the journalism? Um, yeah, I absolutely think so. I think that when you when you think of a story that had a big impact on you, you know, in, in journalism, like a news article or a feature, it's usually the details that um, that stick with you. You know, the personal things, the emotional things, not the numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't remember a chart as much as you might remember how it affected one child or you know yeah. one community. And so, I think story is as important in journalism as it is in fiction. It's just different. You know, you're bound by a certain, by facts in journalism, as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, I very fully believe in the facts mm-hmm. in journalism. Um, but there, you're also limited in some ways of telling emotional truths sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't have a fact to back it up, you can't just put it out there. Um, if you don't have a story, a fact, or you know, something to rely on, um, or something that you're describing firsthand. Whereas in fiction, you can write a lot of truth um, in fiction if you're being really true to the emotions and to the characters that you've created. So I think learning how to be a re- responsible reporter, I think also makes you a good fiction writer because it teaches you how to notice details. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know like and Jeff wrote for not I don't think not, I don't think it was just sports. I know he wrote for like the school paper. Mm-hmm. and um like jess walter talks about like he did i think i think jeff as well i think they both did like they worked on like the crime beat for like small newspapers oh i don't um, know if jeff did i certainly did that but i am i, I yeah. know jeff went well all over the place too yeah i mean that, that makes so much sense you talk about obviously the the, the personal story you can remember that person versus the versus the charts and such i just wonder about like with with nonfiction. you know you talk about <laughs> there are rules i mean i guess there used to be right oh sorry (laughs) there are still rules there still are there are still rules just not everybody follows them anymore there you go the rules still exist yes um you don't necessarily have to delineate but i wonder about maybe some of your current favorite like you know non non fiction or journalistic writers as well as um you know fiction writers or poets well i'll say i've been i've been really following the um uh, the New York Times' climate reporting has been spectacular mm. lately, and I'm going to embarrass myself by not remembering the names of of um, of the you know the key players. But they have been doing such brilliant um, 
it's, it's not just the reporting is great. The writing, the storytelling is great, but they've also been incorporating really great graphics into the reporting, mm-hmm. which I think is bringing in a lot of readers and yeah. engaging people. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like climate reporting has been lacking in general, just like across the board. Yeah. And it's, it's getting more attention. It needs a lot more as we all know, yeah. but what I find with the, the times reporting is like, they're putting it up front now and they're going all over the world you know, on, you know, bringing us stories that, that aren't happening here. And mm-hmm. I feel like they've upped their game so much. And that's where I'm, I go to a lot, but I also, I read a lot, you know, like Grist and Orion and, you know, a lot of the smaller publications that are doing amazing work, um, Mother Jones, there's, um, and I, I tend to gravitate towards climate reporting in general. That's like what I usually read when I pick up a publication that's, mm-hmm. you know, I look at the, you know, top headlines and then I find the climate stories. Um, yeah. That's the, the where my my brain goes these days, which I hope most people's are. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, definitely. How about how about on the fiction side? So I would say some. Um, I love Charlotte McConaughey, you know, who, who wrote uh, uh, "Once There Were Wolves" and "Migrations." Oh, okay. I think she's just a beautiful writer, just a beautiful wordsmith. Her sentences are beautiful, just mm-hmm. the cadence and tone of her writing, but the stories are also really powerful. Um, you know, she writes a lot about climate crisis as well. Um, um, I'm a big Barbara Kingsolver fan. I've always been a huge Barbara Kingsolver fan. So, um, Jessamyn Ward, oh my gosh, love her. Uh, so many, yeah, I could go on and on. I gotcha. I appreciate that. So cool that in the acknowledgements, you talked about, um, how you basically books that the, the characters read were kind of like dedicated to your kids. <laughs> yeah. Like a special reason for them. Um, I'd love to know about, um, I guess just how being a a professor, being a mother has um, influenced your writing. Um, well, I, I'll tell you a little quick, a quick short little snippet. So when I mm-hmm. wrote Waiting for the Night Song, the story came about because um, it's about these two little girls who had stole a boat and would take the rowboat out and steal blueberries and then sell them. And nobody knew they'd stolen the boat or that they were stealing the blueberries. And it came about because I used to take my own kids out on a, a canoe on, on the lake in New Hampshire mm. and pick blueberries on land that wasn't ours. It's just wide open land. But my kids started asking me, like, are we stealing? Yeah. Is this someone's land? Are we trespassing? So I started making up these rules. Well, like, well, <laughs> if we don't take them all, it's fine. And if we don't get out of the boat, it's not trespassing. When That's like really bad parenting. I found myself making up rules to my kids to justify something that really was fine. Nobody cares up on these big, huge pieces of land if some kids pick some blueberries. So I took that what if and turned it into a book of of kids stealing blueberries and making up rules to justify it and then using these rules um, to justify covering up a crime. Mm. I took like, I took that little moment of bad parenting and turned it into a what if. So I feel like as a parent, I'm always, you know, you know, what are my kids going to think about this? Or, you know, am I being a good role model? Am I, you know, modeling good behavior? And when my first book came out and I told that story to a news reporter, one of the very first headlines ever written about me as an author was dubious parenting leads wow. to a novel. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So I guess you could say it's shaped me. Um, you know, I, my kids are, uh, you know, I, they're in everything I do in the book you referenced to the, um, in the last beekeeper, there are four made up books in the end, in the story and that the characters trade with each other mm-hmm. and talk about. It's part of how a, a relationship starts. Mm-hmm. And all four of the titles are anagrams of my four children's names. Oh, so yeah. cool. My, my woe might've drowned it out. So you said dubious parenting leads to novel. Oh, yeah. Dubious parenting novel. leads to novel. Wow. Yes. 
So wow. I was, that has my, mo- that was my one moment of, of like dubious fame. Some of yeah. my friends were like, my friends were scandalized and they wanted to call the newspaper and complain. Mm. I'm like, oh no, let me have this, please. Let me have my one moment of being scandalous. Any publicity is good publicity, right? Absolutely. Man. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, this conversation's over. I can't believe that you've lied to uh, your kids. None of us have ever done that. I've never done that. <laughs> never, not one time have I stretched the truth. No, that definitely, definitely rings true. The recent one, I want to say from March of 2023, the most recent is the the last beekeeper. Did I get the timing right, more or less? Yep, exactly, March. Yeah. In the acknowledgments, you talk about how, about your own beekeeping days and, you know, just the, I mean, a huge amount, unfortunately, dying one day. I wonder if, like, was was that one of the main seeds? I wonder how much of a history you have with with beekeeping. Maybe it goes all the way back. Maybe it's fairly recent. It's Um, pretty recent. Yeah, some seeds for the book, I would say, I would ask. Yeah. So it was really, it was a big, um, the day I lost 40,000 bees, um, I, they had been poisoned, um, by a lawn chemical someone in my neighborhood was using not intentionally. Mm-hmm. And as mad as I was at first, I came to understand it really wasn't my neighbors. It wasn't the problem that someone used a chemical. The problem was that these chemicals like existed in the first mm-hmm. place and that they're legal and that they're available. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that day, as I was looking at this pile of dead bees in my yard, it really got me thinking about what's happening to our, our wild pollinators, to the native pollinators. Like I could see my bees dead in a pile, but what was happening to the other pollinators? And like, what if they all died? That was the question. That's what started the book is what if all the pollinators died? And then my mind just started firing off all these scenarios of like what would happen to our food security to like our agricultural systems Mm -hmm. and if that like went haywire what happens to our economy to our Mm -hmm. politics do nations go to war over food Mm -hmm. resources um so that that pile of of my dead bees Mm -hmm. um started the whole book wow that's that's very interesting i feel like i've always liked honey i mean who doesn't really in recent years i just rediscovered it's like what you know you know with the greek yogurt i have it with my cereal like every night you know, we have some fresh honey. I say fresh. It's we got it fresh about two weeks ago, but it's still you know good. And you know, I'm like so. I'm like mourning almost mourning its losses as down to the end. You know, yeah. um. So you know, there's this idea of obviously the bees. They lead to this beautiful honey. You know, sensuous in the true sense of the word. Just the the senses and so tasty and all of the above. Bees as pollinators. I mean, I, I mean, how much how much um agency do they have in? Well, obviously they don't have agency in their own that way, but. How much control, I guess, do they have over the the crops we eat? You know, you talk about like in the book that if the bees don't pollinate, it would be more like wheat and corn and be more limited. What are a lot of things we eat? What you know, how do, how is how are food security and, and bees pollinating um, connected? Yeah, it's a really big problem. So a third of the food that humans consume is pollinated by uh, pollinators, not just by honeybees, but like by all the pollinators. Wow. A third of the food. So if you imagine in our world, we already have so much food insecurity and so much inequality already. Mm-hmm. Imagine we cut out one third of our food and that's going to exacerbate all the inequalities we already have. The, you know, the limited resources are going to be fought over more, you know, violently and aggressively. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I mean, it could, I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it could really disrupt society the way we know it if we lose pollinators. Um, you know, some things that, um, you know, like brace yourself because I'm going to scare you. Mm-hmm. Things like, coffee and chocolate and Mm -hmm. things we really love um 
you know, uh, honey, if we lose our bees, we're going to lose the honey. There's a lot of foods we're going to lose, but also just, you know, like vegetables, crops, you know, almonds and things, you know, you see those trucks of bees that people, they cart around boxes of bees to farms, um, during like for like an almond, you know, when the almond trees are in bloom, they cart, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of bees to these, um, orchards to pollinate the almonds and they truck pile them back up and move somewhere else. Um, because they rely on the bees, but this is actually really problematic in a lot of ways. It's because like the bees that are managed, the honeybees that you see in boxes mm-hmm. that make, you know, the honeycomb, um, those bees are managed. They are treated with antibiotics, uh, you know, fungicides, um, you know, antivirals, anti, you know, they have parasites they treat. Mm-hmm. So, but then these diseases that they become immune to, they actually can spread them to the native pollinators when they're traveling around. And it doesn't affect the honeybees, but it affects the native pollinators. So this whole system we have is, it's kind of a mess. And we see all these hashtags, save the bees, save the bees. The honeybees are probably not as in, at much as as at much risk as the native pollinators because mm-hmm. no one's supporting them. Nobody is treating them or worrying about them. And in a lot of cases, these trucked in bees out compete the local ones and then they leave. So there's a, there's a lot of problems going on with our, our pollinators. And, um, you know, it's not just the honeybees, it's the butterflies, it's the wasps, the hornets, the mosquitoes, all those things. Okay. So help me with, so the pronunciation, apis mellifera? Apis mellifera, I think I, I, that's how I'm, I'm not a Latin expert, but I think that's how I see it. That sounds right. So those are the honeybees? Mm-hmm. Those are the honeybees. Yeah, they're generally the honeybees you see in the United States are not even native to the United States. Right, right, right. They're Italian honeybees or some Russian honeybees. Uh-huh. Um, and the the dominant honeybee in the United States, I believe, is an Italian um, honeybee. Yeah. And so we have created this whole um, industry of carting honeybees all over the place. And it, it has leaves an impact on the ecosystems we bring them in and out of. So it's very complicated. Dude, as a half Italian, I apologize for my... <laughs> I forgive you. My Paisan bees. Oh my gosh. Okay. So the, the book starts with, with at age seven and Sasha, it's the first scene with Sasha. There's Sasha and her father and her father, the term mellifluous, we just said mellifluous, the term mellifluous or the term, uh, you know, melody where there's this hum of the bees that we all know. I can almost hear it in my head right now. The one close to our trees in the backyard. There's that, there's that, you know, what is it like a G, a G note. Yeah. And the father, you know, father has to take a phone call is how it ends. But he really says, you know, this is this is the hum. This is the this is our melody. And he really, you know, convinces her that she's, um, you know, like a tuning for getting it attuned to that. I just wonder about how much um, about this idea of like the music of the bees in line with with what Sasha, the main character, um, is able to do. Yeah. So in that scene, um the father tells like puts his hand on her shoulder and what his other hand on the beehive and has her listen to the hum, which she, as you said, is, is precisely a, a G note, which I think mm-hmm. is amazing. All be all of them, anywhere you go, they're going to be a G note. Wow. It So he tells her that she is tuned to the pitch of a B and isn't a seven-year-old. She internalizes that and believes it. Mm-hmm. She feels mm-hmm. like she, her father tuned her to mm-hmm. the pitch of a bee and that she carries. I always think of that prologue that you're referring to as kind of her origin story. Like if she were a yeah. superhero, <laughs> that is the moment that she thought she became like special that she, and she does have this connection to the bees, but it's not like a superpower. Like the one her yeah. seven year old mind is thinking that um, she's a, a violinist. She grows up playing music and she hears the music uh, like in the hum of the bees is the vibration of their wings, you know, hitting the air. 
and the vibration of her violin, you feel it in the strings when your fingers, I, I'm a violinist. That's okay. where this whole came from. But yeah. when you press on the strings, there's vibrations in your finger trips. When you're carrying the bow across the strings, you have the vibrations in, in that hand. Mm-hmm. And the violin is on your chin and your shoulder and you feel the vibrations in your chin mm-hmm. and your body. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is that resonance is really similar to that sound of like being surrounded by bees in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So I use that metaphor through the whole book about this idea of, pitch and um like perfect pitch sasha the main character has perfect pitch mm. um which she credits to the being tuned to the pitch of a bee sure. so this is a metaphor i carry through i love music and i love bees so i just kind of smashed them together and yeah. um, used them together i'm not i'm not especially knowledgeable about music you know theory or you know i'm not a singer and all that just i'm just so amazed like like at our school we have an incredible uh conductor of our choir and, you know, the whole thing about like where she, she'll like use a harmonica or something to like establish the pitch melody. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a set of notes. So everybody can hear that where to start. I'm so, I'm so annoying. I'll ask the students, you know, who are in the last the next day of school. I'm like how, like, how does that work? Like, like recently it was at a kind of a louder event and she kind of had to like lean in and make sure people like, how does just hearing like literally one note, how does that like help you attune yourself? I, I don't, I don't understand it. as a uh, Well, musicians can hear or singers, you know, can hear sound in their head. Like I can, um, I'm not a great musician, by the way, when I say I'm a violinist, I'm like, I'm not a good violinist and I don't play much. I play more piano and as an adult than I do violin, but I'm not great at any of them. And I certainly don't have perfect pitch, but you can hear a sound in your head. Like a reverberation? Like, like, like right now I can imagine mm-hmm. what I think is a G. I can, I can imagine that sound in my head. And if you played the pitch and I realized my G was a little low, I can mentally adjust it. So when it comes out of my mouth, it comes out of the right sound. Thank you. That's, I appreciate that explanation. So the, the book is a series of flashbacks, flash forwards. Um, it's age 22 now, Sasha. She's returning to the farmhouse. She, um, we, we find out that the dad, her father's in prison. She basically wasn't like a group home. Was that the term you'd use for Yeah. Her? Yeah. Right. And she's again back at her old at the farm at the at the homestead. I don't know if that's the right term, but they have their squatters there. This is you know about ten, maybe eight or uh, ten or eleven years after like the, you know, some of the main action happens with with prison and everything like that. She knows that there are squatters at her old house. She gets off the bus, hasn't been back. She imagines this bee. She feels like the bees are there, like there's a bee on her, but she's like, oh, I can't be, I can't be. Pardon me. <laughs> In this world of, you know, her age 22, bees are gone. They're not part of the the environment anymore. She comes in contact with a, a gun pointed right at her. How would you describe the the state of the world at this time that leads Ian? We, f- we find out Ian is the one with the gun. Um, and she's okay. Nothing happens. But what's kind of the state of the world that leads to no bees, seemingly, you know, people holding guns up, squatters? What's going on? Yeah, so it definitely has a dystopian edge in the adult timeline of the book. Um, so when we lose the pollinators, you know, the food security collapses, um, you know, it affects the economy. I like to, if if for readers, if you imagine um, the the Dust Bowl, mm. um, you know, and then put it in the future a little bit. So it's our world right now. I want readers to feel really comfortable that they recognize the world, yeah, the technology, yeah. everything about the world. Mm. And then we take things away. Um, unemployment's in the 20%, you know, plus, um, there's a lot of poverty, hunger, 
um, the inequalities have been, you know, you know, pulled at the extremes. Right. And so their resources are, are limited and people have to fight for what they get. So um, these people are, squ- these squatters are living in her family's abandoned farmhouse. Her father went to prison when she was 11, which is not at all a spoiler because you find that out in the first chapter. Right. Um, and um, so they've been squatting in this house. And so to enter this house, she knows the squatters can be dangerous because, you know, everybody's just trying to fight for what little resources there are. So when Sasha goes back to her uh, family home after, um, you know, she's been away for years because her father went to prison, um, you know, approaching this, the squatters during this, you know, kind of unstable in, in world they live in, mm-hmm. it could be really dangerous. So, you know, Sasha, um, you know, she knows she could be, you know, getting herself into trouble, but she has a, a reason to be there. So, you know, the, the in the world outside, you know, the electrical grid is down in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> People are hungry. Um, I like to think of it as um, what would happen if you took the the dust bowl of our past and pushed it into our future a little bit so that you recognize mm-hmm. the world we're in. Um, you recognize, I want readers to, you know, recognize the technology, not feel like this is a distant future. I want them to be so comfortable that they're uncomfortable because mm-hmm. it could happen at any minute, like this could really happen. So the world is disjointed and dystopian, but it's not very far-fetched, I don't think, unfortunately. Oh, right on. No, that, that makes a lot of sense the way you're putting it. I, I, I felt it intangibly, but that makes a lot of sense. You put more tangible things. Yeah, it's it's the Dust Bowl in 2030 or 2035 or 2024. Like, it almost yeah. doesn't matter what year, right? Yeah, that's why I never put a year on it. Yeah. And I, didn't, I didn't hinge it to any markers mm. of time that you could right. try to like delineate what year it is. Um, because I, you know, I wanted, there's tent cities popping up, there's starvation, there's unemployment that are things that are like echoes of the Dust Bowl. Um, but in, in a world that we recognize as you know, our present. Exactly. There's something especially scary about a world that we recognize, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, you definitely succeeded, you know, right away you get to know um, the the characters, the main ones, the, the family that is. Um, Lawrence is the father, right? Yeah. Uh, and then Sasha... Um, who is who's the main protagonist? The early on, there's this idea of um, um, that Sasha's basically saying, like, I mean, she really latches on to this family of sorts. There's is it pronounced Hallie? Yeah. All right. There's Hallie. There's Ian. There's Gino. There's Millie, and she really is like kind of whispering to herself, whispering to her dad, whispering to her her late mother, who we're talking about in a second. She's just like she really wants to rebuild a family. And so, you know, not like overnight, but it goes pretty quickly from her having a gun pointed, having to justify herself, also being pissed at the people because they're squatting on her family land. She really just, you know, wanting that to rebuild a family because she had been away for so long. We, we later learn about how she lived in the, in, the, in the group home with her father in jail and stuff. I'd love to know a little bit about what kind of what motivates Hallie um, to be there, uh, as well as like the, the dynamics between Ian and Gino. Yeah, so this found family that she comes across, mm-hmm. I love them so much. Like I miss Same. these characters. They they were my favorite characters I've ever written and I do I just miss them a lot and they're all you know, they're living in this dystopian world. They're all a little bit broken. They have mm-hmm. been kind of cast out for different various reasons. They've mm-hmm. either been cast aside or chosen to leave their, you know, biologically born families um and um, they all have something that they that they want or that they need desperately. Um, Hallie is trying to get her sister out of the fo- same foster system, a group care system that mm-hmm. Sasha had been living in. 
um, and she doesn't have the resources, a home, a job to to do that. And then Hallie, um, Gino and Ian, who are, they are a couple, um, both of them, um, you know, have have these backstories that I don't want to give too much away about mm-hmm. their backstories because they they kind of come out in the story. Sure. But you know, the two of them met and fell in love in a, a, a camp for, you know, in basically a um, like a tent city kind of camp mm-hmm. under really bad circumstances. And there's medical issues they're dealing with. There's um, you know, a cult in the background of one of their families. Mm. And so they all came from these different traumas and just landed in this farm. Mm. And I liked the idea of bringing them together in a place where it's just them. They're, mm-hmm. they're not dealing on a day-to-day with anyone else that yeah. they are foraging in the woods for food. They're sourcing their own water. They are mm-hmm. trying to grow things and trying to build organically a new family, like a new way to live, a new way to love, a new way to be loved in this world that's a little bit broken. Yeah, it is a broken world and there are some scary things going on. Like, is it is it a silver lining or a nice thing? Or I don't know, are, are, are we to assume maybe that maybe homophobia is not a thing in this future oh, world? No, no. I mean, I th- you know, I like when I brought all these characters to the farm, um, I wanted them to just exist in the farm. Mm-hmm. And there is an illusion in one of their um, one of their stories, which I, I don't want to, it's, it's a kind of okay, a spoiler, okay. sure, this, sure, right? Sure. but that there was um, a homophobic yeah. incident with one of Ian, Ian and to be clear, Ian and Gino are the same size right. couple, the two guys. And there is a an incident in one of their mm-hmm. backstories. It's very formative into who he became mm-hmm. and one of the major roles he plays in the story towards the end. But it comes out slowly. Yes. It's not when you first meet them. This this right. storyline comes out very slowly. Right. Um, but there's, you know, there's a there. I didn't try to fix the world. Mm-hmm. There's still, you know, racism and there's homophobia and the climate's a disaster. Um, I didn't fix the, the world, but I was trying to find mm. people in it that could fix each other, maybe. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, now you say, I think maybe I didn't want to, I mean, you have you have to do a little bit of inferring uh, for the homophobia, but like, but yeah, it's it's there. I mean, it wasn't said explicitly because you're a really good writer, but, but yes, <laughs> yes. So there's the apiary, am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Right, which is where um, you know these, <clears throat> these last bees were were kept. In, in back in the, in the flashbacks, we find out about about secrets and about you know, again without giving away too much of the plot with her father, that he you know he made it on the like the Time magazine cover. He was known as the last beekeeper, and you know this back and forth. He decided at one time that they needed to be inside because they were dying off, and you know his whole life really is that. He is is a single father. And he's a loving father. There's some beautiful, beautiful moments between father and daughter. You already talked about one of them with like the, you know, the tuning to G and all of that, the the, the tones. But also he, you know, he becomes very distracted and focused and compulsive and obsessive. I just wonder about how much maybe his B obsession is some of his trauma from from losing his wife, or is that just kind of always the way he's been? Um, I don't think it's about his wife necessarily. <clears throat> I think it's that he he loves Sasha more than anything. He loves Sasha more than the bees, more than science, more than his work. But his work, which we don't come to understand fully t- until towards the end of the book, yeah. is so important that he's doing it f- for Sasha. Mm-hmm. It is an act of love what he's doing, but she sees it as neglect. Mm-hmm. She sees it as him choosing the work over her. And it shaped her life and how she saw him into her adult life after he went to prison. Um, But, you know, but his motivations aren't necessarily what we think they are from the beginning Mm -hmm. of the book. It wasn't just a workaholic situation. Mm -hmm. 
it wasn't just like I, that he liked bees more than her. It, it was, there was something bigger at play that she didn't understand. Yeah. Um, and, and so his love for her never wavered. Mm-hmm. She just wasn't always aware of what his motivations are. And if people aren't good at communicating with each other, you know, people's mm-hmm. intentions, you know, people don't always know how you feel about them. And he is not the, not great at expressing himself. And, mm-hmm. you know, communications get lost, you know, letters get misplaced, things mm-hmm. that, you know, that when they, they're, their attempts to connect with each other don't always happen. Um, and, but, but they, they love each other though. Like that, that the love is always there, even when they're angry. Could there be a more cynical view maybe that does say like, well, the, the work did take away, he kind of, maybe the work was a little bit of an excuse. Um, I get, or even less cynical one, maybe like you said, that he just was not good at communicating like why he needed to be doing the extra work. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Like he could have, he could have shared that with her. Mm-hmm. But he thought he was protecting her. And I think that's a typical parent thing, you know, like, yeah. I'm just going to shield you from this. So you don't have to worry about it. So I'm not going to tell you the truth. Sure. And for Sasha, the lack of that information haunted her mm-hmm. her whole life until she finds out at the end what was going on. How would you describe um, Sasha's really important relationships with the bees and with her mom? Ah, yeah. So, you know, she has these, her mother died when she was really young. So she mostly was raised by her father, but she has a lot of memories of her mother. And so, She's left alone a lot when she's a child, like too young to have been left alone that often by her yeah, father. And so she she talks to her mom and it, there's no ghost in the room. This isn't a ghost story. No. But she imagines conversations with her mother, like what her mother would have said. And even like arguments she would have had with her mother or her mother defending her father. And then she'd get mad at her mother for defending. And her mom's not there. This is just her remembering that role her mother played in her life and her missing her mother. Hmm. Um you know, and imagining how it would have been different if her mother had been there. And the, the mother and the father loved each other. There was a lot, there was a lot of love in the family and it mm-hmm. got disrupted when the mother died. The father retreated a little bit into his work and um, kind of Sasha was left on her own with the bees. And so mm-hmm. she spent a lot of time um, taking care of bees as a child. Like she had her own hives when she was mm-hmm. growing up that she cared for and she loved these hives. I mean, she mm-hmm. really, you, you can really care about bees, which sounds a little bit silly to someone who hasn't cared for bees before they they're very endearing little creatures when you spend Mm. time with them um and when you see the way they operate as a community you have a lot of respect for them Mm. that they they take care of each other they take care of the hive they're neat they have assigned roles and they just do them and it benefits Mm. the whole hive which there's you know some a lot of metaphors in there about the way they live as a community to the betterment of the entire community Mm. um and so I think Sasha, you know, sees like Sasha's job in the present in her adult life mm. is she literally works as a hand pollinator. She has become a bee. I mean, mm. she, her job is she works in a greenhouse hand pollinating vegetables, mm. which is the job of a bee. Like she became yeah. the thing her father took care of, you know, she, right. um, and so she she does love these bees and she's both, um, you know, haunted by them and comforted by them in, mm. in, throughout the book at different times. Yeah. This this is one of the books that I, I I might stop the the most short of like you know getting into the book as far as the plot because there's so many cool twists and heartbreaking mm-hmm. twists and heart wrenching twists and heart bursting if that's a word uh, twist but um you know we do know from the flashbacks that you know when she was eleven she is she's put on the stand right to talk about her father and the the loss of these bees there are rumors throughout the throughout the present time that you know of bees maybe being out there but those people are quieted down pretty quickly and she's you know she's at this squatter's house and she's you know trying to decide how much do i tell them of my story 
right? Um, because again, you know, she wants that found family. She wants that that love, that that belonging. But also, she's she's there to to find out some some of the story. I wonder about her uncle Chuck hmm. and his connection. He's a really interestingly drawn character, kind of a bumbling, you know, bumbling kind of always sweaty, always smells like cheese, you know, cool <laughs> things there. But also a little bit just kind of off putting. Um, not like in a horror sense or scary sense, maybe it might be a little bit later on. How did you kind of conceive of Chuck? Do you, do you have any feelings in a way towards Chuck again, without giving away the ending? Yeah. So he's a complicated guy. Sometimes mm-hmm. I feel really sorry for him. Sure. I feel like all Chuck wants is to be loved, you know, yes. but he's so annoying and he's, <laughs> he makes some bad decisions and he's smells like cheese. You know, he, he always does the kind of always does the wrong thing, but with good intentions, mm. but he also does some really dangerous, really problematic things. Mm-hmm. So he isn't just like a bumbling fool. He makes some sure. really significant, bad decisions that um, have some serious ramifications. So he's not like all bad, but he's certainly not all good. And he, he's just like this complicated guy. And I will say he wasn't in the first drafts of the book this way. Mm. I had this more generalized corporate um, idea yeah. of a villain, you know, that the, the, right. the villain is the machine, the, in, mm. you know, the corporate America, big agriculture. Mm. And, um, you know, we were talking about stories and emotions before, you know, with, you know, facts and figures and you need a human mm. face. I was like, I need... I needed a person mm. to embody all of that. Um, mm. and, and so Chuck had already actually been in the story as this guy that walked on stage a couple of times as, you know, the, her, her, um, the Sasha's mom's brother. So it's her uncle. Mm. And so I, I brought him in closer and I kind of, yeah. kind of in, in, endowed him with all these not great qualities that I had been giving to corporate America, mm-hmm. but with a human face and with, a, he has a yeah. heart. And right. he has, you know, he has love in his heart, but he just does not know how to act on it very well. Yeah, definitely. No, it's it a, it a great character for your, for the great story, for the great storyline. Because like you said, you know, he, you talk about stage, him coming on stage, like he went with her when she, when her father wasn't able to go to the violin, uh, you know, to the recital or whatever it was, right? He was there for her, um, yeah. you know, on a lot of occasions and and true hugs and did seem to truly miss and love his sister who, you know, who did pass away, who's the mother. I don't know. Did you ever, did you ever watch the, uh, the Sopranos? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a scene off you remember where Tony gets shot and he was in the hospital recovering and Polly, you know, Polly's the guy who's always just yapping yeah, yeah. away. And Polly is just talking mm-hmm. and talking and talking and, and Tony's unconscious. Right. And the scene in the book where um, she comes to in the hospital when she's a kid and he's just yapping away. I'm talking about Chuck. Yeah, that's she's funny. I hadn't like, thought about that. She's just like, would he shut up? She's pretending to be asleep and the whole deal. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, he he's Polly. Yeah. He he does he's <laughs> annoying, but like he means well. Like he cares, but mm. he's just kind of annoying. Like little things like when he comes to her recital, her father doesn't show up to her her music, mm. her orchestra performance. And he shows up, but he brings her bright pink carnations when all the other parents brought roses. Just like mm. he that mm. that was so thoughtful of him that right. he went. And he brought her flowers, yeah. but he does it just a little bit wrong. Like everything he does is this little bit. And, sh- and Sasha as a child sees that like, as an adult, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Cause I screw up all the time, <laughs> but as a child, she sees this character who she wishes it was her father in his yes. place doing these things. So Chuck is a really complicated guy. And I yeah. really liked putting his character together. Cause he is not at all one thing. He's a lot of things. Definitely. So before we leave the plot alone, you can say as little as you want about her, 11th birthday yeah yeah 
that was a big day, her 11th birthday. Um, June 6th, that's my best friend's birthday. I gave uh-huh. her my friend's birthday. But, um, yeah, so Sasha, um, her father forgets her birthday. And forgets to come home for dinner, which mm-hmm. she is making for him. With that, if that yeah. tells you a little bit about the relationship, that he stays late at the apiary. She was making her own birthday dinner, and he was supposed to come home and at least eat it, and he forgets. Mm-hmm. So she stomps through the woods to the apiary, and she does the thing that she is forbidden to do, and that's to go inside the apiary with the bees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't want to say what happens, yeah. but it's it's a, a moment that sets everything else in the book into yes. motion. In the good things and the bad things um and some guilt she carries with her for her whole life mm-hmm. isn't what she thinks it is and so she's carrying physical wounds mm-hmm. emotional wounds guilt shame um she feels responsible but this is the moment that led to her father going to prison all of these right. things but in the end of the book if that moment hadn't happened Mm. Things will turn out really differently and not always, not necessarily for the, for the better. So, right. you know, it's too complicated. Okay. I appreciate that. You, you're so good at drawing characters. Um, Basil, am I saying his name right? Yeah. Basil, yeah. Right. Uh, he's a reader. He's someone who's always kind of at the, like the mutual aid society type of place, right? They have almost like a flea market set up. There's yeah. Octa- Octavia, great author name. I don't know if that was a shout out to Octavia. Yeah, that, that was a hundred percent. People call me out on that. That um, yeah, Octavia is a um, a, a like she a was fixer, a kind of right. What's that? Yeah, she she has a a shop that sells used bike parts and used books, mostly science fiction books, hmm. and she's kind of the hub of the entire community. She's like the mom. Yes. And she is 100 um, percent a nod to Octavia Butler, who is, you know, the mother of all climate fiction novels yeah. that today. Oh, yeah, for sure. OK, OK. Yeah. And and there's a there's a new bookstore. I want to say it has her, that's named after her in L.A. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. OK, very cool. But yeah. So, I mean, there's really interesting characters. Uh, you know, Millie, who we didn't talk about a lot, is very interesting. Shoot, even Hugo, like the the attendant at the, you know, at the <laughs> home. Right. Just a character. Yeah. Yeah, he's memorable. And Sasha, of course. Sasha is, you know, she's still young. She's 23-ish, right? I think 23, 24. Yeah. 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 And, you know, she's gone through so much in her life. Um, but the flashbacks are so interesting. So you're so good at at drawing interesting characters, even if they smell like cheese. (laughs) Um, the the action is just like, oh shoot. And then oh, I'm on this person's side. No, I'm not. Oh no, my gosh. And it's so it's not like in a crazy, ridiculous way, but just in a, you know, in a really um the pace the pacing is really cool and i am an absolute sucker for ending a book on a flashback which you did and it was kind of a short one but um just yep. i love love the ending as well how much of the book is a is kind of a is a call to arms um you know look what we're doing with climate change look at the beauty around us with the bees and the incredible you know systems that are in place that we don't necessarily you know we definitely have not respected throughout history um, how much of it is a call to arms? How much of this is, is more just kind of a, how much of it is allegory and how much of it is kind of like a single story as well? Well, first and foremost, it's a story. It's a um, a story. I want people to be engaged with the story, with the plot. I want them to love the characters and I right. want them to care about what happens. So they turn the page. But underneath that, there's a lot of, you know, my fears um, about our climate. So all I have two books that I've written and I have one that I'm finishing and then I have a fourth book under contract and they all deal with an element of climate crisis. Um, some small element, um, they're not like disaster stories, but they're just some quiet 
mm-hmm. element of the climate crisis um, and about the people who are reacting to them, because that's what I'm afraid of. That's what keeps me awake at night. Mm-hmm. And I think all of my books have, have grown out of my climate anxieties. Um, so I don't write them as like a, like a, you know, a manual or something. I, you know, mm-hmm. I write them because I care about them. And that I hope when you read the books that you'll care about these things that I care about. I hope you will love bees. I hope you will mm-hmm. maybe not swat a bee away the next time it lands mm-hmm. on your arm. Or, you know, I want you to see the thing. I guess what I want most is for people to recognize that we've lost a lot. We've already, we've lost an, yes. so many species, plants, animals, um, and we're going to lose a whole lot more in our lifetime. It's just a fact. It's just real. Mm-hmm. But we haven't lost everything. Like there's so much left. Mm-hmm. And that's like one, one thing that Sasha's father says a lot in the book is like, look up and see what's still there. Like mm-hmm. fight for what is still in front of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you love? That's what he always says to Sasha. What do you love? Fight mm-hmm. for it. Yeah. And I think we get like paralyzed by grief and guilt um, and anger so much when it comes mm-hmm. to talking about climate issues of how much we've screwed up because we've screwed up a whole lot and we yes. could be doing so much better. And if we just get paralyzed by that, nobody's going to act. So if I can just like make people kind of like look up and see the bee or the flower, the trees or whatever, and how beautiful it is and just want it to be there tomorrow Mm -hmm. and then do what we can, you know, to, to make sure it's still going to be there tomorrow. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. You know, there, I mean, there's, there is hope in it. Like even, even when it gets into the really dangerous point where everyone's, you know, in squatter camp or, you know, uh, camps and their squatters and stuff. The idea is that it seems like um, oil and gas and maybe oil and coal have been eliminated. Yes, yes. I love that you you came. Very few people have ever commented on that. Yeah. When they talk about my book. Yeah, I basically, with one swipe of my pen, I made all fossil fuels. Thank you. I took took me to do that. All these people trying to do it. Yeah, that um, fossil fuels have been eliminated. Um, They're They're illegal. Government job, yeah. Yeah, I should, because I just did it in one day. I was like, okay, I've decided that they're over. Um, And, you know, when you have a world in crisis, I think it's a lot easier to make really big, hard decisions um, than when things are like edging towards crisis. You know, people wait to the breaking point. But I just decided this future that I was going to put my characters in, I wanted it to have a future. Mm -hmm. If things are the same in terms of our use of uh, fossil fuels, it wasn't going to get any better. Mm. So I just made it better. And that yeah. way, when you look forward at the future that these characters have, it, there's a possibility it's going to be a whole lot better because there is no there's no fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Maybe things are are better than you know we think they are on the first page of the book. Hmm. I, I read so much into that too, just with like I can I know never know how to say the word is cicadas 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 yeah you know even like the cicadas who are talked about in the book they they fall asleep for like ten years or fifteen years sometimes. 17, right? I think. 17. They hibernate 17, exactly that kind of random number. They hibernate for 17 years and, you know, they come back and, you know, this idea that nature is so sick. I'm not saying anything extre- extremely intelligent, like I made it up, but, you know, the nature is so cyclical, right? And it's like, you know, nature has been through so many cycles, way, way, way past our living time, right? And, yeah. you know, the idea of the bees and like hopefully regeneration, you know, like I said, there are some species that will not be regenerated, but you know, the wolves, for example, there's some, yeah. you know, parts of the country, right. Are being regenerated in some ways. And just like, I'm also thinking of um, my 10th grade students are just reading there will come soft rains. I don't know that one. That's it's, uh, Ray Bradbury. Okay. I haven't read I, it. I would highly recommend it. It's a short story, but it's just this idea that like nature in the end outlives us all. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. Nature's going to be fine. We just might not be here to see it. 
Sure. It, you know, it's not necessarily, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. Depends how you read it. Nature, <laughs> nature always wins. Yeah. Right? It, it will. I mean, the planet isn't going anywhere, but maybe mm-hmm. we are. Definitely. So thanks so much for writing this book. It's, it's unfortunately very topical in some, so many ways with ideas of climate change and, and impending doom in so many ways, but also there is hope not in a Mickey mouse, you know, saccharine sweet way. Um, but it's just so well executed. I'm just so interested how you put all the flashbacks and flash forwards and really came together with a, a seamless storyline. I would love to know where you, you know, if you have any shout outs, places we should buy the book, um, where we can find you online, all that good stuff. Oh yeah. Well, um, you can find me on, on social media, on Instagram. I'm Julie C Dalton and I'm still for the moment hanging on over at Twitter. Um, I, I, I just, I haven't made the break yet, but I'm there, but if you want to find my Julie Cardalt over there, but Mm -hmm. my website is juliecarrickdalton.com. And, you know, I, I always just, I recommend indie stores, you know, go to your local store or if you aren't, don't have one in your area, you know, Mm -hmm. go to um, bookshop.org and order it there. Um, instead of the big place, um, mm-hmm. give, give our, uh, our booksellers, uh, you know, help them earn, earn a fair living. Sure. I just see here. I have an unintentional Twitter commercial, maybe advertisement with his ex and backing me here. Oh. Oh, my <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So I heard that Octavia maybe is getting a secondhand uh, copy of the last beekeeper uh, when, maybe when, buy from her. All right. There you go. All right. I'll, I'll make sure they get a copy in their store. I'll make sure World's they know. Colliding. World's colliding. Yes. Thanks again so much. Look forward to your to your upcoming books as well. And um, you know, quite an achievement. Such a such a great read. Thanks for sharing and thanks for sharing your thoughts. No, thanks for having me here. This is a lot of fun. Awesome talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Julie Carrick Dalton. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills of Will PO1, the digit one. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube, the Chills of Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills of Will podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played is Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. Both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 210 with Dan Sinekin. He is assistant professor of English at Emory University with a courtesy appointment in quantitative theory and methods, whose book, Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry in American Literature, comes out with Columbia University Press on October 24th, which is the day the episode airs. For now, thanks again for listening, and we wish Julie Carrick Dalton good luck with her continued work. I hope that these uncertain days bring you, the listener, texts by writers with mad skills like Julie Carrick Dalton, whose work, like The Last Beekeeper, gives you chills at will.